please join me in a spirit of prayer. Ground of our being, we stand on the cusp of a new year, a new adventure, a new Princeton, always recreated by its newest members. We stand just the same in the midst of an old Princeton, strong and deep in history, tradition, and vision. We hope for the grace to live together well, to learn and to teach with wisdom and compassion, and in these things to do as the psalmist wrote, to walk in our integrity. May our every effort point toward the highest ends, the advancement of knowledge, the uplifting of humankind, and the promotion of societies of justice and peace. May peace indeed be within us and among us all. Amen. Please be seated. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure for me to extend a warm tiger welcome to all new members of the university community and to those of you who are returning after the summer. To the 1,300 members of what I have every reason to believe will become the great class of 2015, I congratulate you on your excellent judgment in choosing to matriculate at Princeton. You have already passed your first important test. As you were discovering, you hail from 47 different states of the Union plus the District of Columbia and 46 countries on six of the seven continents. No one from Antarctica, I'm sorry to report. You have hometowns as near as Plainsboro, New Jersey, and as far away as Opotiki, New Zealand. But however far you have traveled, we are so glad you are here. To the 636 new graduate students, I also offer special greetings. This year's entering class is a strikingly cosmopolitan one, as you too come from six of the seven continents, proof positive that Princeton is truly an international university. Whether you've come to develop your professional credentials in engineering, finance, architecture, or public policy, or to embark on a life of scholarship through doctoral studies, you have an important place in this community. I would also like to welcome the 39 new members of the faculty whose distinguished scholarly achievements and dedication to teaching in dozens of disciplines are certain to enhance Princeton's reputation for excellence in research and undergraduate and graduate education. I also welcome new members of the staff. We witnessed a remarkable example of their dedication just two weeks ago during Hurricane Irene. Not only was the campus protected and secure, but two days after the storm, one would have been hard-pressed to know that anything untoward had happened. Finally, a warm welcome to the returning members of the classes of 2012, 13, and 14, as well as to the graduate students and faculty who have spent the summer either here 
or away from campus pursuing their scholarly work. I hope it will not have escaped your notice that we have not been resting on our laurels over the summer. From chimney repairs at 15 Dickinson to audiovisual upgrades in Aaron Burr Hall, from the start of renovations of, at Firestone Library to the completion of the steel superstructure for the new neuroscience and psychology buildings, the campus has been a blur of activity in preparation for your arrival. Now, I'm often asked by nostalgic alumni why the campus needs to grow and change. In their view, the campus was perfect, especially during their four years. Don't laugh, you'll be saying the same thing in 40 years. The answer, of course, is that the best universities not only respond to change, they lead it. And so as new ideas and ways of thinking are born, advances in technology create new fields, and old buildings crumble, Princeton must be both intellectually and materially at the forefront of discovery and change. It is now my honor to introduce the new Dean of the College, Professor of English and African American Studies, Valerie Smith, who is beginning her first year as your Dean. Dean Smith is the quintessential Princeton faculty member, a distinguished scholar of African American literature, a beloved teacher, and a dedicated university citizen. And it's with great personal pleasure that I now invite her to recognize the academic achievements of seven exceptional undergraduates. Good afternoon. As a research institution with a deep commitment to undergraduate education at its core, Princeton is proud to begin the academic year by honoring this outstanding group of students for their intellectual curiosity and academic accomplishments. I'm honored to present this year's prize winners to you today. We begin with the freshman first honor prize. The Freshman First Honor Prize is awarded each year to a member of the sophomore class in recognition of exceptional academic achievement in the work of the freshman year. This year, the recipient for the class of 2014 is Eugene Alexander Katsevich. Eugene lives in Oviedo, Florida, and graduated from Oviedo High School. An AB candidate, Eugene plans to concentrate in mathematics and is considering certificates in applications of computing and in applied and computational mathematics. He lives in Wilson College. It is my
It is my pleasure to present the Freshman First Honor Prize to Eugene Alexander Katsovich of the Class of 2014. The George B. Wood Legacy Sophomore Prize is awarded each year to a member of the junior class in recognition of exceptional academic achievement in the work of the sophomore, class, of the sophomore year. This year, there are two recipients for the class of 2013, Irene Wan Lo and Aman Sinha. Irene Lowe lives in Sydney, Australia, and graduated from James Roos Agricultural High School in New South Wales. An AB candidate, Irene is a mathematics major and is considering certificates in engineering and management systems and in Russian and Eurasian studies. Irene is a member of Wilson College. Aman Sinha lives in Ivyland, Pennsylvania, and graduated from Council Rock High School North. A candidate for the Bachelor of Science in Engineering, Aman is a mechanical and aerospace engineering major, pursuing certificates in applications of computing and in applied and computational mathematics. Aman is a member of Whitman College. It is my pleasure to present the George B. Wood Legacy Sophomore Prize to Irene Wan Lo and Aman Sinha of the Class of 2013. Next, we turn to the George B. Wood Legacy Junior Prize. This prize is awarded each year to a member of the senior class in recognition of exceptional academic achievement in the work of the junior year. This year, there are two recipients for the class of 2012, Anna Pate and Jonathan William Norman Sarnoff. Anna lives in Irvine, California, and graduated from Santa Margarita Catholic High School. An AB candidate, Anna is majoring in physics and pursuing a certificate in Spanish language. Anna is a member of Maddie College. Jonathan Sarnoff lives in Stamford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of Horace Mann School. An AB candidate, he is majoring in philosophy. Jonathan is a member of Whitman College. It is my, it is my pleasure to present the George B. Wood Legacy Junior Prize to Anna Pate 
and Jonathan William Norman Sarnoff of the Class of 2012. And finally, we turn to the Class of 1939 Princeton Scholar Award. This award is given to that undergraduate who, at the end of the junior year, has achieved the highest academic standing for all preceding college work at Princeton. This year, there are two recipients of the prize for the Class of 2012, Nathaniel Hamilton Fleming and Ten Yao Wan. Nathaniel Fleming lives in Eugene, Oregon, and graduated from South Eugene High School. An A.B. candidate, Nathaniel is a psychology major and is pursuing a certificate in French language and culture. Nathaniel is a member of, Na of Maddy College. <laughs> Tenya Wan lives in Ningbo, China, and graduated from Hua Chong Institution. An AB candidate, Ten Yao is a mathematics major and is pursuing a certificate in applications of computing. Ten Yao is a member of Whitman College. It is, it is my pleasure to present the class of 1939 Princeton Scholar Award to Nathaniel Hamilton Fleming and Ten Yao Wan of the Class of 2012. Thank you. I will be reciting a passage from the Quran. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Arrahmanir rahim. Maliki yawmiddin. Iyakan abudu ayakan nasta'in. Ihdana sirat al mustaqim. Sirat al adhin al amta alayhim. Ghayrir maghdub alayhim wala dalim. Amen. In the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful, all praise is due to God, the Lord of the worlds, the beneficent, the merciful, master of the day of judgment. Thee do we serve, and thee do we beseech for help. Keep us on the right path, the path of those upon whom thou hast bestowed favors, not the path of those upon whom thy wrath is brought down, nor of those who go astray. The Mool Mantar from the Sikh Faith. Ek Omkar Satnam 
करता पुरख निर्भव निर्वैर अकाल मूरत अजूनी सहभंग गुर प्रसाद ही इज वन ही इज ओमकार द यूनिवर्सल साउंड एनर्जी द सुप्रीम ट्रूथ ही इज द क्रिएटर बियॉन्ड फियर बियॉन्ड रैंकोर ही इज द टाइमलेस फॉर्म नेवर बोर्न सेल्फ क्रिएटिंग ही इज अटेन्ड बाय द गुरुज ग्रेस वाहे गुरु जी का खालसा वाहे गुरु जी की फतेह Please join me in a responsive reading of Psalm 104. Bless God, O my soul. O God, my God, you are very great. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the winds your messengers, flame and fire are your ministers. O oh God, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. A reading from Romans. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. contribute to the needs of the saints extend hospitality to strangers bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly do not claim to be wiser than you are do not repay anyone evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all if it is possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all
At the beginning of each academic year, I arrive at opening exercises with a sense of both optimism and yearning. The optimism is based on what I know about each one of you. The promise that Dean Rapoli and Dean Russell and their colleagues saw in the information you shared with us in your admission applications. You've been chosen because we believe that each of you has both the quality of mind and the strength of character to extract from this privileged place all that it is capable of providing and to use that education to make a positive difference in the world. You are the source of my optimism. The familiar admonition in the book of Luke, to whom much is given, much is expected, applies in full measure to all Princetonians, and I hope you will take it very seriously. Now, my yearning grows out of pure envy of the intellectual journey upon which you are about to embark. As you execute this last great leap between adolescence and adulthood, each of you will make decisions that will determine the kind of person you will be for the rest of your life. You will encounter ideas, both ancient and modern, that will astonish and motivate you. And you will discover that you have the capacity to generate new ideas yourself. You will make friends that will be with you for the rest of your days. And those friends, coupled with a well-honed loyalty and devotion to this place, will draw you back time and again to the Princeton campus long after graduation. The next four years will be heady, stressful, thrilling, exhausting, happy, and ultimately deeply rewarding. You're undertaking your intellectual journey in a profoundly different milieu from the one that I encountered as a freshman over 40 years ago, a time that my son refers to as the late Jurassic Age. <laughs> then, information was at a premium. It had to be laboriously extracted from the catacombs of libraries and archives, retrieved from vast card catalogs, and uncovered in heavy tomes, almanacs, manuscripts, encyclopedias, and dictionaries. Today, information is more often than not just the click of a mouse or the tap on a screen away. In the space of your short lifetimes, information has migrated from the library to the desktop to the backpack and increasingly to the pocket. There is the potential for all the world's information to be at your fingertips all the time. The magnitude of this information revolution is matched only by the development of the printing press in the 15th century, a seismic advance in technology that has some elements in common with the rise of the Internet. Like that historic event, the spirit of the modern revolution is highly democratic in that it is making information accessible to anyone with an internet connection. No longer is information the purview of those who have access to the world's great seats of learning. It is potentially available to every man, woman, and child on the planet with no strings 
or wires attached. And like the arrival of the printing press, the instant availability of information, from Plato's theory of justice to Lady Gaga's middle name. By the way, she has two, I looked them up. Has the potential to accelerate the creation of new ideas and the discovery of new knowledge and ultimately to lead to greater insight into the nature of the human condition and the natural world. Yet realizing this revolutionary potential will take far more than the ability to access the world's information. It will require the ability to organize that information so that patterns can be discerned within it, to recognize unexpected connections between disparate bodies of knowledge, to apply the tools of logic and moral reasoning in order to extract true understanding and to muster the courage to draw conclusions and then change your mind when new facts come to light. Without a well-prepared human mind, the abundance of information at our disposal will remain a cacophony rather than a symphony. In the next few years, your Princeton education will prepare you to be the orchestra conductors of all the world's information. Now, there are those who are much less sanguine than I that the information age represents a unique opportunity for forward progress. In a recent article in the New York Times, Neil Gabler of the Annenberg Norman Lear Center at the University of Southern California lamented that the facility of accessing information on the internet has led us into the post-idea era where, and I quote, we are inundated with so much information that we wouldn't have time to process it even if we wanted to, and most of us don't. In effect, we are living within the nimbus of an informational Gresham's Law in which trivial information pushes out significant information, but it is also an ideational Gresham's Law in which information trivial or not, pushes out ideas. Now, dire predictions about technological innovations that empower citizens by making information more accessible are as old as time itself. Socrates worried that the invention of writing would erode the ability to retain memories. The advent of the printing press led a Swiss scientist, Conrad Gessner, to warn in 1565 that the book would overwhelm people and be confusing and harmful to the mind. My own personal favorite, however, is in an 1883 article in a New York medical journal that predicted that public education would exhaust the children's brains and nervous systems with complex and multiple studies and ruin their bodies by protracted imprisonment. I hope that wasn't your high school experience. <laughs> now, while I don't subscribe to the view that information per se is dangerous to either the individual or to society, I am concerned that the ready availability of so much information is creating the illusion that we know more than we do and is confusing facts 
with ideas and interpretation. The inadequacy of facts alone was made patently clear to me over the summer as the United States Congress debated whether to raise the debt ceiling. The debate began with a number of facts that were not in dispute. The size of the national deficit, the cost of taxpayers of serving the interest on that debt, the fraction of the federal budget that is available for discretionary spending versus entitlements, to name just a few. Yet the debate was not guided by those facts, but rather by very different philosophical positions regarding the appropriate role of government. On one side of the aisle were individuals who fervently believe that government should play a minimal role in the lives of its citizens. That government taxation and spending should therefore be reduced and that markets should be allowed to function without government interference. Arguing from that set of assumptions, they voted against raising the debt ceiling as a means to constrain the future role of government. Those on the other side of the debate share a conviction that government can and should be a force for good in the lives of citizens, that it has a responsibility to protect the least fortunate among us, and then in a recession, the government should inject money into the economy to promote unemployment and stimulate growth. From that philosophical perch, raising the debt ceiling was a foregone conclusion. How is it that armed with the same basic facts, members of Congress came to such diametrically opposite conclusions? One reason is that human affairs are messy, as the wise South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu has pointed out, and do not lend themselves to simple black and white solutions. Another answer is that each of those members brought to the question different experiences and beliefs that informed his or her worldview and different levels of understanding of what was at stake. Now, in an ideal society, if such a thing were possible, engaged citizens would collectively reach important decisions in good faith by taking into consideration ideas from political theory, a discipline that lies between political science and philosophy, and that for millennia has been contemplating the rightful purpose of government. They would look to history for lessons learned and to moral philosophy to articulate the ethical dimensions of the question. Teachings from economics, sociology, and psychology would help leaders anticipate the impact of various outcomes on both the social fabric as a whole and individual members of society. Yet even in this ideal society, it is highly likely that there would be no single accord reached because of the great variety of human experience and the tremendous plasticity of the human mind. We do not all see the world the same way, but it is incumbent on each of us to approach challenging issues that affect us all with as many intellectual tools, in addition to the raw information, as we can assemble. As Woodrow Wilson did say over a century ago, there is no profit in information unless you know what to do with it.
unless your mind has a certain scope and mastery. Over the next four years, your Princeton education will stretch your minds in ways that you can only begin to imagine now, preparing you to be informed and effective citizens of this and all countries, citizens who are able to draw understanding from and discern the most fruitful path amid the immense sea of facts surrounding them. You will learn to approach multiple, learn multiple ways to approach a problem applying historical and social analysis, quantitative and scientific reasoning, and moral philosophy to unpeel thick onion skins of difficult conundrums. You will hone your own aesthetic sensibility through the study of great works of art, and through art, develop a deeper understanding of the human condition. You will experience the power of language to serve as the entree into another culture. And I hope you will take advantage of the many opportunities that Princeton provides you. <laughs> I just want you to know this is the first time I've gotten to page 25 before bingo. In courses in epistemology, you will have an opportunity to consider the nature and boundaries of knowledge itself, to distinguish facts from truth and knowledge. If you learn these lessons well, not only will you thrive in the information age, you will also be a credit to your country and to your alma mater, like so many Princetonians before you. I am looking forward to getting to know each of you and to cheering you on inside and outside the classroom as you chart, chart your course through this great university. And I hope you will leave our campus saying, as generations of students before you have said, this place changed my life. Welcome to Princeton. Please rise as you are able. And please join me in reading the prayer for Princeton. O eternal God, the source of life and light for all peoples, we pray you would endow this university with your grace and wisdom. Give inspiration and understanding to those who teach and to those who learn. Grant vision to its trustees and administrators, to all who work here and to all who bear her name. Give your guiding spirit of sacrificial courage and loving service. Amen. A prayer from the Jewish tradition. 
L'davir Adonai ori v'yashi mimi ira, Adonai ma'oz chayai mimi avchad. Bekrova lai mirayim l'chol espesari sarai v'ayali, hima kashlu v'nafalu. Im tachana alai machana lo yirali bi, im takum alai machama b'zosani boteach. Achasha alti me'es Adonai osa avakish, shifti b'ves Adonai, kol yimei chayai l'achazos b'noam Adonai u'vakir b'hechalo. Of David. Hashem is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Hashem is my life's strength, whom shall I dread? When evildoers approach me to devour my flesh, my tormentors and my foes against me, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army would beseech me, my heart would not fear. Though war would rise against me, in this I trust. One thing I asked of God, that shall I seek, that I dwell in the house of God and all the days of my life to behold the sweetness of God and to contemplate in his sanctuary. A prayer from the Christian for tradition by St. Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spanish Carmelite nun. Lord, I am growing older. Protect me from apathy. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking that I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. With my vast store of wisdom, it does seem a pity not to use it all. But you should know, Lord, that I want a few friends at the end. Keep my mind free from the recital of endless details. Give me wings to get to the point. Make me thoughtful, but not moody. Helpful, but not bossy. Seal my lips in complaining of my aches and pains and troubles. Yes, they are increasing, but love of rehearsing them to others is becoming even sweeter as the years go by. I dare not ask for improved memory, but for a growing humility and a lessening sureness when my memory seems to clash with those of others. Teach me the glorious lesson that I occasionally may be mistaken. Keep me reasonably sweet. Let me love. Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people. And last, O Lord, Give me the grace to tell them so. Amen. A blessing from the Hindu tradition. Om Sahana Vavatu Sahanao Bhunaktu Sahaviryam Karvavahe Tejasvinavadhitamastu Mavid Vishavahe Om Shanti 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 O Lord, may we be protected. May we be nourished. May we work together 
performing only the most heroic and divine actions for the good of all humanity. May our learning be prosperous to all. May we never quarrel with one another. May we illuminate together living in harmony. May there forever be peace. A blessing from the secular humanist tradition from an address given by Ralph Waldo Emerson. By trusting your own heart, you shall gain more confidence in others. For all our penny wisdom, for all our soul-destroying slavery to habit, it is not to be doubted that all men and women have sublime thoughts, that all value the few and real hours of life. They love to be heard. They love to be caught up into the vision of principles. We mark with light in the memory the few interviews we have had in the dreary years of routine and of din with souls that made our souls wiser, that spoke what we thought, that told us that we knew, that gave us leave to be what we inly were, discharged to others the priestly office, and, present or absent, you shall be followed with their love as by an angel. Receive now this benediction. The poet Langston Hughes penned these immortal words. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. May the cherisher of dreams, sustainer of hopes, ever-present immortal companion on the way, bless you to daringly dream dreams into being, enable you to give voice to visions, and ordain you to fulfill your destiny in the world. May you hold fast to your dreams on this commencement day. Amen. Thank you.